0: But what there was, was a vacuum for, uh, for anything on the alcohol side that was organic.
1: Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. So my, my guest today is Keith Barnes. He is the founder of Bainbridge Organic Distillers, strangely enough, located in Bainbridge Island. Uh, Keith, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So I've, I'm a lifelong resident of, of Washington, um, and I just remember being younger and distilleries were a no-no and all of that. And so it looks like back in 2008, the state changed. Yep. And then shortly after that, you opened up Bainbridge Organic Distillers. Why, how did that process get started? And, I'll, and then we'll talk about you, but I just want to get that question out there. It's like, what was the inspiration and motivation to to start a distillery?
0: Um, I think that the, the, the main thing is that... Um, it's not like I thought that the world needed another distillery. There's there's tons of distilleries out there, and even at that time, um, the the huge distilleries for the most part, a lot of them were making unbelievably delicious products. So it's not like there was there was a, a vacuum for great whiskey, but what there was was a vacuum for uh, for anything on the alcohol side that was organic, other than maybe a few brands and some organic beer that was out there. And I started to experiment with different mashes and with different techniques in about 2005 to see if it was possible to use organic technology and organic ingredients, which are which are sometimes ridiculously old school, to make a whiskey and have it turn out that, that might be good enough that people would actually buy it. I think it's important to, to note that at at that time, buying an organic product, you weren't necessarily guaranteed to be getting a product that was better. In fact, at that time, a lot of people shied away from organic production because they thought that it wasn't going to taste as good as the stuff that, that they had all of their, um, you know, that they had that, that has all, this, all the stuff in it that you might not want in there. And our tests were, were, were really successful. And then the state changed the laws to allow for distilling on a small scale with a tasting room that was, that could sell product out the front door, which was critical for us because, because, you know, it's hard to compete if you can't get your product sampled. And, um, so when they changed that law, I just put up the kit and, uh, filled out the applications and, uh, and went for it. And I, I'd been at that point, I'd been in the spirits industry for about 25 years and working for all of the majors, uh, in, in, marketing. And so it was really, it was really kind of a natural extension of what I'd already been doing. The only thing I really hadn't done at scale was actually make a whiskey and market my own whiskey.
1: So were you living on Bainbridge Island at this time? Are you, I was, That where, okay. And I, so
0: I'm a Washington, uh, uh, a Washington resident, lifelong as well. I have lived a couple other places, but always ended up back here just because uh, I like it
1: here. So what is it about Bainbridge that calls you home? I mean, what, what is it? You know, sell Bainbridge Island to us. How's that?
0: <laughs> well, I'd say it's really it's really that it's, it's, a, it's a perfect combination of, of a lot of different factors and a way of life and, and a certain kind of atmosphere. The island uh, is, is heavily forested from one end to the other. Uh, most of the new development that goes on here, if it's not in the core, is at five acres or above. So we don't have tons and tons of housing going in. We don't have terrible traffic here because there's not that many people that live over here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's still just a half hour away from Seattle, and you don't even have to have a car to come over. And it's 25 minutes or 20 minutes, depending on the traffic to the airport. So I fly out every once in a while, was traveling a lot more when I first moved here, but it was, it, it's got kind of the, the best of everything that I was after a great environment, good lifestyle, uh, low crime, good schools, the whole thing.
1: I'm moving to, no, I'm kidding. I'm, we moved, we moved from the Seattle Tacoma area over to Wenatchee and kind of the same reasons, you know, but for me, it's the, I I appreciate the warmer weather and the the real winters. I mean, it's kind of weird. I like it. I like four seasons versus to me, the Tacoma area where, where I grew up was kind of always, it's just seemed like it was always October. Yeah. Um. So you started this and, and when we talked the other day, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, being an all organic product has not been the simplest or the easiest thing. Um, and that you're, you source a lot of your stuff, you know, your, your wheat is coming from Washington state for and things like that. You haven't deviated though. You've stayed organic the entire times. Correct. That's correct. You know, that's your thing. And now how does it feel that you're, your products are winning all these awards. You, you're, you're held in very high regard as a, as a distillery. Has it been worth it?
0: I I think so. I I think that, that the, the, the truth of it was that as I, as I said at the beginning, I'm a big believer in the whiskey category and uh, in, in spirits in general, there's, there's tons of, of absolutely top top notch spirits that are out there. And if I, if I couldn't find a way to make one on the organic set, which I think really is a unique feature and something that not everybody is doing because it's more difficult to do and it's more expensive to do. I think if I couldn't have pulled that off, I just wouldn't have done it. I mean, I mean, I was, I started, most of my experiments when I first started were, were with single balls. and you're looking at, <laughs> but you call them the competition when you're, when you're making it at such a small scale, but you're looking at it and going, okay, am I going to make a, am I going to make a single malt that's better than McAllen or better than Bowmore or better than whoever that's it. That's that, that's it. That's a daunting challenge. And to be able to make it organically, if you can do it, it seemed like, seemed like that's what, that was really a way to differentiate myself in the market. And it was a way to, be more true to what my beliefs are, which are just to try to have as small of a footprint as you as you can. And and critically, uh, I'm I'm a collector of old alcohol as well, so I've got a I've got a collection of several hundred bottles of whiskey dating all the way back to I think my oldest bottle is from the 1870s, and then wow. way up through the 20th century to modern. I kind of collect I, in the whiskey sets. I collect pretty much everything. My sweet spot is between the twenties and the fifties. Uh, and when you taste that old liquor, you it, you're like ruined for you're ruined for that category for the rest of your life. You taste, you taste a, a good bourbon from the thirties or the forties and you pick up your bottle of bourbon that you spent hundred dollars for at the store and you pour them side by side, there's not even a contest. It's not even – it's like that other bottle. That new bottle shouldn't even be on the table. It might, like, like infect the old bottle because the old stuff is so marvelous. It's just – it's unbelievable. And one of the other reasons to go organic was as I'm doing the processing and and we're wrestling with formulas and we're wrestling with – how do you actually bring this stuff off without modern enzymes and without, without modern uh, yeast nutrients and, and, and salts and all the rest of it? How do you turn the clock back and actually do it? One of the goals was maybe by simplifying it and by using ingredients that weren't genetically modified and weren't the product of a of, of big lab. If you're forced to make it the way that they used to make it, and at the time, most organic grain that you could get was all throwback grain. It was grain that had been developed uh, early on, you know, maybe in the 60s, maybe in the 50s. It was, it was the product of, of selected breeding. They're trying to put traits into the grain that make it resistant to some of the pathogens that were impacting grain at the time. Funguses and molds and stuff like that. They weren't doing it for high yield and they weren't doing it for homogenous flavor. They were doing it because, well, this makes you taste these old you taste these old grains and they all taste different. You could have six different kinds of wheat sitting in front of you and none of them taste the same and all of them taste great. And you do a combination between a modern commodity soft white wheat and this old school organic soft white wheat. It's not even a question. So you think about when, if you've ever tasted distillate right off the still, wheat distillate or rye distillate, or even a brandy, and the you know difference between an apple brandy and a grape brandy, you can't deny that that base flavor that's in that ingredient, the rye or the wheat or the apple, especially with fruit, it's a lot more pronounced. Corn is always a little bit musty. Um, that flavor is in there from that from from that natural ingredient, even when you run it through several passes through the still it's still in there. And if you start with a grain that's clean and you start with a grain that has a better flavor, you just, it just goes, you know, you got the proof right there that says that that flavor transits the process. So you end up with, you just end up with a better flavor. And, um, and for me still, even if I think that there's a lot of forces that are going against organic production right now, You have people in the, um, people that sit on, uh, on, on, on boards and in, in groups that work for the government that are writing the rules for organic production and adding this. And now this has to be, you know, this has to be special and this has to be special. Um, and these people all work for companies like, you know, Agritech and, and, uh, and, and Monsanto and everything. A lot of times, you have these these uh, these panels that are that are writing the rules, and most of them are from the, a competitive industry. So, when we get to the point where where they say that to make an organic whiskey, you have to have a, an organic or oak barrel. So, when we get to that point, then it's all over with because there is no such thing as 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 you know organic oak forests, and nobody's making organic oak barrels. And at that point, that, that would be the, I'm certain that somebody's working towards that because um, there's a lot of money involved in, in controlling the food chain. So,
1: right. I'd like to go back to something you said about your whiskey collection.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you mentioned you had a bottle from back
0: 1870.
1: 1876. Have you? And I and I apologize if this is a silly question. Have you actually tasted that whiskey?
0: So so my rule is, uh, my rule is that that when when I get a bottle, unless I've got a duplicate of it, uh, if I get a, if I get a bottle, the first thing that I do is I open it up and I taste it. It doesn't matter wow. what it was made. It doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't matter because to me, okay. the only value that that an antique whiskey has it's the same value that any whiskey has. I'm not a, I'm not a collector and I'm not an investor because I'm sitting there and I'm hoarding my bottles and keeping them safe. And then I'm going to spin them off on the, on the, on the black side of the market and make a gigantic profit at it. Um, That's, that's really, to me, it's about, it's about sharing it and it's about using it as a way to educate myself and educate other people that uh, that these that these products were out there and they're fantastic and it's a way to draw a line between what they used to make and what we make today and to say we can find a way to make product this good we just Mm -hmm. have to figure it out before there was high-speed gas chromatography and there was before there was electron microscopes and before we had computer algorithms that were running our cuts on the still and before we were using refractive technology to determine what was in the distillate, all this other stuff. Before any of that, you had guys that were making this stuff. It wasn't by the seat of their pants. They understood to the degree of, of science available, what was going on, but they had to figure out, well, how do we get in the middle of that process to make a, to make a really good product? And then how do we make it consistent? And whether they understood completely what was going on doesn't really matter. You, you don't. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you were if you were going to talk to um, to Michelangelo and ask him if he understood the chemistry of paint and exactly how it was going to dry and all of the rest of these technical things it's like, OK, well, well, let's look at the work. What really mm-hmm. matters? Is it the understanding of how it got there or is it understanding what happens when you're doing it? And just using that as a base for what you have to do and then just striving to make it excellent. I think it's really the latter. The former doesn't, the former doesn't matter. It's an it's right. a nice to have now to be able to, to, to run samples through gas chromatography and to be able to, to uh, analyze what, what you have. It's, it's great to have that. And it informs you of where you are in your process and what you might've done wrong if you're trying to remedy something. But it's not a. It's not a set of uh, of thresholds in a computer that once you reach a place, okay, all of a sudden everything changes. Now, it's like no, it's, you, it, you have to, you know, yeah, you, you can do it that way, but doing it by hand, I think, you're making a product that people are gonna are gonna consume. People's uh, array of of what they can smell and what they can taste is 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 incredibly sensitive. People can taste things down to three, four parts per million. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, the computer can tell you what's in there. But you probably, if you, if you study it, you can find a way to tell yourself as well.
1: Okay. So out of your collection, can we narrow it down to one? Is there one that has risen above all? Like you're like, this is amazing.
0: Oh, there's there's so many of them that are amazing, but uh, um, there's a lot there's a lot of these whiskeys that are that are very surprising, and and it's okay. it's hard to uh, you, you taste them, and it's it's hard to get your head wrapped around the 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 you know how, how massively good they are. But mm-hmm. there's a there was a distillery in Maryland called Orient, and there was a, there was a a whiskey collector who was actually related to the owner and the master distiller of this product. And the distillery went out of business during prohibition. But prior to that, this gentleman had collected a lot of barrels of whiskey and then had them bottled. And he passed away early 1900s. Um, his wife, who, who took his, who had his estate, passed away in 1943, and then all of these bottles went up on the auction market. They actually uh, auctioned them off. They held an auction at the Ritz Carlton in, uh, okay. in, I think it was in November of 1943, and the majority of these bottles were purchased by big fancy restaurants that were saving that were using the bottles to pour for their for their their best and, and most wealthy customers. And so this stuff got bought and then they just poured it out and people loved it. And that's what you should do with it. You should, you should, you should drink it. But I have a bottle of night of, of 1890 Orient rye, uh, Maryland rye whiskey, which is different than Pennsylvania rye and Kentucky rye and Indiana rye. They were all different back then. Okay. And, and it is probably one of the most unreal spirits that that i have in my collection there's a lot of them but it is one that kind of stands out it's uh, it's like nothing that i've ever tasted before and uh and it just and it's a favorite i don't have much of it left in fact i i I decanted it in uh in a little 200 ml bottle just so it wasn't exposed to so much air but uh, i'm doing a i had a i challenged myself at the beginning of this year because I I never I always wanted to do it write a journal or write a book or something and I never figured I never knew do I have the do I have the discipline to make myself do it every day Can I actually sit down and do this every day So I decided to combine my collection with my challenge and I started a, a uh, an Instagram post called uh, My Year of Whiskies and so each day I I take a photo and I profile one of the bottles of whiskeys from my collection some of them are new that are some are outstanding new whiskeys and a lot of them are are unbelievable old whiskies and so i give a little bit of history i do uh, a comprehensive set of tasting notes as comprehensive as you can do on instagram they're not very generous but for somebody long-winded like me You gotta really pick your words to uh so that you don't run over the limit but uh so i've I've been revisiting this whole year since the first of january i've been revisiting all these old bottles in my collection and i'm still staggered by the quality of some of them that they're just that they're so good even even things that you would think you you would consider to just be be a run-of-the-mill like a like a 40s bottle of old granddad which right which now is on the bottom shelf Right, a '40s bottle of, of Old Crow. Um, it's it's probably those two. Those are probably those those whiskeys are probably some of the best old whiskeys that you can find. That product is so good, and people people just don't have a clue. The company that Jim Bean purchased uh, purchased uh, Old Overholt and Old Granddad, and uh, a couple of other and Old Crow and a couple of other products in the eighties from a company called national distillers and national distillers was the company that made all this great product right through the eighties. And then it went into the, into beam's portfolio and some of it went into a couple other portfolios, but beam has done a great job of building up the portfolio of brands that it bought, that it made, that it created itself. Um, uh, All their, their, their small batch set, is uh is fantastic basil Hayden and Bookers and all and those they spent a lot of time polishing those up and making them really phenomenal it tends to be that the brands that they purchase uh, like these older brands they really haven't done a whole lot with them they've changed the they've changed the recipes so that they're easier to make and they're not as dynamic and uh, they're still pretty good. But they're but they're not they're not what they used to be. Old Granddad might be a little bit of an exception. The Old Granddad Hundred Proof is uh, is a pretty solid product for for less than twenty bucks a bottle. It's probably one of the best twenty dollar whiskeys out there. So,
1: okay, I, I I I'm struggling to wrap my brain around the idea of <clears throat> actually trying, you know, eighteen uh, nineties whiskey uh just it's weird. I, mean, I totally get why you should but I'm struggling like I like if I were to own that if I would I would be brave enough for myself to try it so I be, i think it's fascinating i'm gonna go f- yeah I'm gonna I, I didn't know you were doing this Instagram mm-hmm. thing I'm gonna have to Check that and, and and I'll put it in the notes because that sounds fascinating that you're you're doing that every day. You should take so, I
0: mean, even even whiskies, even older whiskies that are just round the mill, early times. <laughs> I mean, now which is just which is not as uh, um some products that are really good, but for the most part, uh, a lot of these old methods and a lot of this really expressive grain and uh-huh. a lot of the natural yeasts and a lot of the either natural enzymes or barley malt that they were using really just did a good job at what it was doing. And and back then you could make what you could make and you could get a certain yield out of a batch of mash and you weren't striving to get more. You were striving to meet what was, what this is about what we're going to get about 8% mm-hmm. alcohol by volume. Doesn't seem like it's a whole lot, but now you now with, with, uh, with, with genetically modified enzymes and, other things you can you can maybe increase your yield up to 10 11 12 percent for a, for a whiskey type product uh, maybe even more for a clear spirit like a, like a base for a gin or a vodka but to do that you're really using technology to turn something into a carbohydrate that wasn't really intended to be a carbohydrate you're getting a little more alcohol out of it because the yeast eats carbohydrate, eats sugar, and then it, it then it, then it, uh, then it, then it produces alcohol. I don't know. I don't necessarily know that that's that that's the best thing. That you're that you're 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 getting a higher yield of alcohol, but is it really, you know, is it the alcohol that you want? For me, I'm right. resigned to. I'm resigned to living in in the caveman days. And doing it old school with all of these old inputs that we have here, and just trying to trying to perfect it as much as we can perfect it, and then to continue to work on recipes and to continue to continue to work on uh, on aging programs, and just to, to to just whittle it as much as you can to make that stick as sharp as you can make it, so it's as 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 good as it can be right now, and then always focusing on trying to make it better.
1: Well, it's obvious because you've won numerous awards for, for multiple, multiple products here.
0: And you can talk me over with a feather on some of that stuff. I, I, I just, I wanted to make good stuff. I never knew Mm -hmm. we would win, um, world's best vodka and world's best wheat whiskey six times. Now it's, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's 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 awesome, but it's uh, you know it certainly wasn't expected at the beginning.
1: So I'm going to ask you to educate me on something here, and I'm going to probably mispronounce M- M- Mizunara. Mizunara. M- Mizunara. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm aware that Japanese whiskeys have some. Re- There's some really great Japanese whiskeys out there. There are, and. So first off, so this is, I I jokingly say, this is my show. I get to ask the question. So I get to learn what, how would you define a Japanese whiskey? What makes it different than say an American whiskey? And that might be a really naive question, but first off, can we, can you just explain that to me what the inherent difference is?
0: Well, I think. The origins of Japanese whiskey are pretty are pretty young. They didn't really make whiskey in Japan until the twenties. And, okay. and and pretty much up until up until really modern times, the majority of the Japanese whiskey that was being made was made on the Scotch model. So, so the, the barley was coming from Scotland and they were using yeasts from Scotland and they were using Stills that were patterned after Scottish stills, if they hadn't been made in Scotland, the guy who first made whiskey in in uh, in um, Japan learned how to distill in Scotland, and his wife was Scottish, and she was the daughter of of, of, a, of a big of a big distiller. So, so okay. that's how it started. But I think that they, I think that the distillers in that country have they have they have a, a different they have a different perspective and i think that they're looking for they're looking for excellence and they're looking for they're looking for inspiration and they're looking for nuance and they're looking for new avenues to travel but but always really well thought out and always with a plan in place and always with 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 an eye to making it as, as good as it can be, they, they make Suntory has Suntory white label, which is, which is just their version of, of, uh, of a light whiskey that, uh, kind of like a lighter flavored scotch, but something that you used to make highballs with, or something we would use to mix Coca-Cola or ginger ale with here. Um, but there's, but the, the serious whiskies are are kind of, kind of made along the Scotch model, but they're now, they've, they've been branching out quite a bit into doing other things with different grains and with different kinds of yeast, um, different woods, Misenara back on the map now. It, it was, it's, it's become a, it's become a, a cult wood to age whiskey. in. Uh, it's really difficult to get, but if you, if you can find a supplier, then, then it does some really marvelous things. There's no other, there's no other wood like it. it there's seriously nothing else that, that makes a whiskey taste like a mezanar whiskey. So, and the reasons that there's not very much of it out there are just that the barrels are, are the barrels and the wood uh, are, are, it's really hard to get. And it's the barrels are, and the wood are very expensive. And, and it just, it's a, It's always, it's always going to be a a fringe thing just because there's not enough wood out there to, to really make barrels, to do gigantic type production work.
1: Okay. And so your, yours just, you know, one double gold for the best single grain whiskey recently. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. The, the bottle that it is in is, in my opinion, beautiful. It's a piece of art. Thank you. Um, what inspired you to try that to go that direction?
0: Well, actually, it was. Uh, so, my philosophy is really to not try to do something that is copying something that 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 another distillery is doing. If somebody's doing a great job of doing something, and I don't think that I could find a better way to do it, then usually not going to go that way because it's hard enough to come up with a unique thing and then to have a bunch of people jump on top of it and try to, and try to copy it. that's, that's just, that's, that's bull. So we, we uh, um, there was a village on Maybridge Island in the 1880s and it was there till through the middle, middle twenties. And it was called Yama. And in Japan, in the, in the 1880s, there was a lot of upheaval due to the, government and the uh, and the society westernizing and different classes of people were kind of either thrown off their land or thrown off their role as being um samurai or there was just a lot of upheaval there and there was a lot of immigration out of japan at that time and a lot of it came here um okay. and we had a village that that was set up here called yama uh out by Blakely harbor where there was a big lumber mill and the people that came over here first off came over, uh, were just men and a lot of them were working at the mill and then they sent for their families and then they created this village that was up on the hillside and it stood until, uh, the timber industry collapsed and the mill shut down. And then a lot of people moved to other places on the island and took up different, different tasks. And some people moved off the island altogether. Um and this village by the middle 20s uh, burned to the ground. The fire started there and it, it burned down and it just stood. It's on a really terrible piece of land that is hard to build on. It was covered over with ivy for decades and uh, the parks department here was looking at doing some um, some work on the site to maybe open it up so that people could, they could have some trails through there and maybe some bike trails and maybe I had even heard some some motorbike trails. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. And people, and there's and and there's relatives of the people that lived in Yama that still live here on Bainbridge Island. And there's a lot of people that really have an appreciation of history and of his, of of, uh, of historical preservation. And there was a cry that went out that said, "No, we can't destroy this site." Um, and some research was done on it, and it was determined that it was one of the last. Uh, First-generation Japanese immigrant village sites that was still in existence that hadn't been developed over. There wasn't a parking lot on top of it or an apartment building or a housing development. It was still pretty much the way that it was when it burned down and the people just left. And so we decided, and there and there was there was a lot of talk about putting together a foundation and starting to collect money and doing some. Examination of the site, an archaeological dig was in was in was in the conversation. They wanted to catalog everything and really gain an understanding of what that 1880s immigrant experience was like, and then to expose that and use it as an educational tool, um, and uh, and and to really just preserve everything, preserve what we could know of it before. All of that was gone. And so I decided, well, I've always thought, hey, we should be supporting all these local things more than supporting things that are in these far-flung places. We can have a bigger impact at home and we could throw some money at it, but we also could maybe make a product and we could sell the product and we could throw that money at it, but we also could gain a lot of notoriety and a lot of exposure for the for the. The issue which in this point was preserving this yama site and we could get people involved in it in a way that wasn't just hey we're throwing money at it we could get them involved in this this visceral way where they were looking at the whiskey and they were understanding what had gone on and they were valuing the whole thing and to me that that's that's the money shot when you can do something like that then you're then people are remembering it and they're really understanding what you're doing and and you don't have to go out and sell all that stuff. They take it in when they when you when you approach them through an avenue like whiskey that they might or, might already be interested in. And so, for the first two years that we had this product, we worked on this product for quite a while, and it was very very difficult to pull off with sourcing the oak and everything else. It took us three years just to source the oak for the first. Oh time. wow! Building barrels uh, in, in in Arkansas with this wood, which is really difficult to work with. And, um, and we launched it for it was just under 500 bucks a bottle. We sold it for 499. And then for the first two years, uh, you got a certificate, uh, you got a tax certificate. So we'd sell it for, for a uh, 499 and then, uh, 399 was, uh, was a donation to, uh, the Bainbridge History Museum and the group that they had put together that was working on the archaeological dig and curating the elements and uh, the artifacts. And so all that money was donated to uh, to the Yama project and uh, and we kept a hundred bucks a bottle but with what it cost to make it it was uh, <laughs> it was uh, it wasn't uh, it was that that project was uh, was not in uh, that project was in the red until. Uh, until, until recently. So we still make donations on the sale of that product, just not to the, just to the, not to the, uh, the extreme amount. The Yama project is over and they've already done all the work there. So, and that's something that we'll probably do again. We'll probably create a whiskey that has something to do with the history of the island and use it to, uh, to, to, to pull in funds to, to, to try to uh, solidify something that might be slipping away.
1: Oh, that's, that's, that's outstanding. I'm, <clears throat> I'm a whiskey fan. Not, I'm not an educated whiskey fan. I'm just a whiskey fan. So I'm not, I I don't, I mean, I just asked you a very naive question, right? So I am not a vodka or gin aficionado, but you guys also are doing vodka and gin. Yep. What was the inspiration for those products?
0: I think the, the real inspiration I had an appreciation for whiskey opening this company up. I didn't really have an appreciation for, for the other spirits. We were, you're looking for a way to, when you, when you do whiskey, you're going to be tempted to release it before it's really ready. If you're trying to Mm. drive revenue with it. And so a lot of distillers start out making, they make whiskey and they put it in barrels and then they make vodka and they make gin and they sell the vodka and gin for cash flow. While the whiskey's aging, and so I don't think that we were any different in that, other than that we were looking for a unique way to do it, and um, and I think that we did. We we make a, a vodka with um, soft white wheat, hundred percent soft white wheat, and we use a yeast that really concentrates some floral and vanilla flavors in it. The yeast isn't really intended to be used on grain. It's used, it's intended to be used on sugar cane, but, mm. uh, out of the trials that we did, it really had, it really gave uh, an earthy pleasant, uh, character to the vodka. And so we went with that and then we developed a gin, which utilizes, uh, uh, 10 different botanicals, including, uh, organic dug fur fronds. So, we're kind of adding some more dimension to the evergreen component that you normally would only get from juniper, which can be kind of harsh, but, um, um and, and so you kind of dimensionalize that evergreen component. So it's a lot fresher. Our, our production technique on that also, uh, uh, allows us to get more of a fresher, less astringent product. Uh, and those, those are both, those are both done really well. I love both of them. Um, We've actually done some some uh, some barrel uh, some barrel aged gins also uh, to add a little bit of a, of a woody flavor to it. So those they're they're great products. I think that they're um, they're not our focus. Our focus is really is really whiskey. I think if you look at our portfolio, we have we have one vodka, we have uh, we have two standard gins. And one limited edition gin where uh, where the gin is aged in Isla whiskey casks. So uh, smoky whiskey casks, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, and it's definitely not for everybody, but bartenders love it. It really makes a unique gin cocktail, especially when you're adding other things to it, adding bitters or adding other liqueurs to it makes it really interesting. Uh, but on our whiskeys, we have... Um, We've got, uh, we've got five whiskeys that are in, actually six whiskeys that are in continuous production. So we have our battle point, which is our standard wheat whiskey. We've got a two islands series of whiskeys that start as battle point. So when we have barrels of battle point that are, that are done, we are emptying them into uh, casks that held products from other islands around the world. So we have an Isla whiskey cask, uh, Battle Point. We have a Barbados cask, and we have a um, Hokkaido Mizunara cask. Uh, And then we have uh, our Yama whiskey, and then we have our Whiskey 40 Saloon bourbon, which will probably be released in the next, I don't know, the next couple of weeks. We'd want to try to get it out for for Father's Day. And then that one takes a, a historical bend, too. Uh, on the north end of this island, back in the 1800s, we had two lumber mills here. We had we had Blakely, or the Port Blakely mill, um, and we and we had uh, the Port Madison mill at the other end. And uh, the Blakely mill was like was like a regular mill. The Port Madison mill had a mill town, and the owner was a teetotaler. And his wife was was a temperance activist and so they had a mill town uh, but it was dry and okay. they had a hotel in the mill town but they only served like two percent beer that was as much as you could get and if you worked at the mill I don't think you could get it I think you had to be a guest of the hotel so the people find a way and there was illegal distilling going on and there was even somebody that was in a that had a boat they had a this a dis little distillery on a boat. And he, they would pull up and people would go down and get moonshine <laughs> from this guy in a boat. But, oh. but not too far over the property line from the mill town, a um, guy named Bob Impet and another guy named Harry Winchester, they opened up a saloon within a stone's throw of the mill town. And it was called the Whiskey 40 Saloon. And um, if you read old newspaper clippings from the island, and there's some of them left. Anything that was, anything that was out of control or, or was unseemly or whatever, that's where it was happening. It was happening at the Whiskey Forty. They had a still in the back. They had a card room for that members could join. You could be a member of the card room, and then they had the saloon out front. And it was it was a rough place. It was a log building and with little slitted windows. And uh, but the sheriff was up there all the time, and they're always trying to. I was trying to stop something from happening, but it's, it gets a little, it's a colorful, it's a little colorful aspect to living on, uh, on, uh, on Bainbridge Island. So we thought that that was, that was a good name for it. And it's a cool name. It's a fun name. So it's an old, I, I, it's an older style bourbon. It's, uh, and it's, it's bottled, it, uh, it's bottled in bond it's hundred proof. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a legit, nice,
1: strong bourbon. I like the fact that you 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 make historical references to things that you're you're going back and paying homage to to things that are that happen on the island where your where your business is. I think that's I think that's I think that's amazing.
0: Well, I think one of the things that we didn't talk about was the founding tenet here was to make sure that we're making product that 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 tastes like it came from here. We want our products to taste like they came from a place, not here okay not just hey we have we have whiskey we're here we're here on the island we could have set this up anywhere we if we were smart we probably would have set it up out in walla walla county close to where we get our grain so that we weren't transporting stuff all over the place but i knew that if we if we set up the distillery on bainbridge island you know, we're in the middle of a in the middle of a maritime environment here. We've got water that's coming by on both sides. We've got you know wind that's shooting down from the Straits of Juan de Fuca. We really have this maritime character here, and one of the things that that is sure to impart character to barrel aged product is maritime air, and that's a, that's a, that's a big part of of, of what we're doing, and um, and even to the point that. You know when when these organic farmers are growing grain that they're gonna that's gonna be used for for alcohol, they're they're growing grain that was designed by the ag college that was close to them that did a really good job of growing in their microclimate. So somebody that's in Central Oregon might be growing soft white wheat, but the guys that are growing it in Walla Walla County, they're 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 growing something that was different. And so the ag school at uh, at in Oregon probably developed a number of strains of, of, of grain. They're still developing strains of grain for local use, and they're using them in Oregon. The grains that our guys use were developed in, in Pullman mm-hmm. in the 60s, and, and they're using them out here because they were designed to work in this environment. And so you're using grain that's really expressive. You're using grain that was designed to be grown here. And so you're making sure that whatever you're making – you're making sure that it's influenced by by the ground you're making sure it's influenced by this place that we're in and and that way it's that's that way it's it's unique to here i'd hesitate to be highfalutin and call it terroir or anything but in 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 some ways it's you know, you, you drink you you drink 10 year old lafroigue fresh lafroigue when you're at the distillery on isla and there's seaweed and kelp wrapped around the, the, uh, the, the, the pillar or the, the pilings underneath the warehouse. And sometimes in the year you have, you know, decomposing kelp and all kinds of stuff, it's all over the place. I mean, you cannot, the iodine that comes out of that kelp, that's in the ambient air that gets through the barrel. You have mm-hmm. gifts, and then all that evaporates and then the ambient air soaks in and takes its place. You can't say that it's not there. because It is there. There's there's no no fooling. There's no other way for an iodine, for a, a, an essence of iodine to get into a whiskey barrel that's sealed up, unless you're pouring it in, which they're not. It's just it's coming, not. In, it's coming in through the air, and that's a, and that's you know that's that's a fingerprint that says we're we're here. We're legit. We're from here. We're not from someplace else. Place the place of where you are. Makes a difference. I wouldn't have a distillery in downtown Seattle. It's like, okay, what it smells like smog or whatever else is going on in Seattle. I don't know. It's it's like you know we want to have some character to it. That's uh, that's you know that's identifiable. <clears throat>
1: what what's next? Do you have aspirations of more varieties? Do you. Are you playing around with anything that you would share? I mean, you know, what's, what's next, if anything, more, more of the same.
0: Well, we've, we've done some work with, with rye Uh, on, on the organic side. It's a little hard. It's a little harder to work with. Um, as much as, as much as we don't use any, uh, any GMO enzymes or processing aids here, um, they do a bang up job of what they do. So in grain in difficult to handle grains like rye, the, those GMO enzymes do a great job. It makes it so that you can really get a decent enough yield out of it to, uh, to make it worthwhile. So we may or may not unlock the key to organic rye whiskey. I'm not sure. Um, well, we're doing some work starting up with, with uh, malted grains. So, uh, we do we do a lot of work with barley right now, but it's unmalted. We're probably going to do some work with uh, with with malted barley, maybe even with malted rye. Those are those would be those will be years off. I don't think there's there's none of the whiskeys that we have now that are in a barrel for any less than five years. So it still takes a while to figure it out, to architect the product, and then and then run your trials, see how they measure up to what it is that you were going for. And then, and then, and then, start putting together a production plan so that it uh, you can consistently pull it off.
1: <clears throat> so, when you're not running a distillery, when you're not sampling your cult, your antique collection, what do you what do you like to do for fun and uh, relaxation around Bainbridge Island or anywhere for that matter?
0: Well, I'd I'd say that. Uh, Not a, not a tremendous amount of time for relaxation. So, um, I own another company called motive marketing group and my business partner and I, we've been working together for almost 30 years now. And, um, and, and when we, when we started this company in, in 2000, we decided that out of all the things that we had both done in our in our previous roles in working at another marketing company, that the category that we really loved to service was the was the al- beverage alcohol category. So we're specifically involved in marketing of beverage alcohol. The vast vast majority of it is spirits, and uh, the rest of it would be champagne and then wine, which is probably maybe 10% of it. And, uh, and we do work for, we do work for the, uh, for the, the biggest distilling conglomerates in the world. So we do work with beam Centauri and with William Grant and sons. They're the owners of, uh, of Fiddick and Balveny and sailor Jerry and Hendricks gin, uh, for no Ricard. We do work with absolute and, and we all pretty much, pretty much everybody. So we're specialized, very specialized in uh, in working with the spirits industry, and and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. We both used to work on other accounts that were really just painful to work on; they just weren't fun. The spirits industry has got is really populated by people that are really fun to be around. Every once in a while, you get somebody who's not fun to be around, but for the most part. The people people are always in good humor the margins in the beverage industry are pretty good so people aren't looking always necessarily looking for a way to do it cheaper. they're looking for a way to do it right and 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 it's a and it, it's a good place to be and we've been doing it for a long time and I think that both of us have uh, we both serve as different different parts of our clients but it's been doing it for 30 years gives you a lot of experience on knowing what it is that you need to do to get something done without having to execute a research project or do a focus group or bring it just, you know, there's experience matters when you've been in the trench for a long time and there's really no replacement for it. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. So I have two jobs. Mm-hmm one of them is a booze job and then the other one's a booze job. And then on part of my all time. <laughs> I have a booze posting that I do. So
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm catching a thread. A, sim, a, a There's vague similarity. So we,
0: we, oh. you know, when, when we're not locked down in COVID, we, we like to travel to different countries and, and, um, we have horses and, and we have, you know, we've got a piece of property out here and we've got chickens and, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a nice place to be. It's a, it's a really nice place to be.
1: So if people want to find out more about you and you're in that, where can they, where can we, where can we direct them?
0: Well, I think, I think that, uh, I think that uh, the distillery website is probably the best place. So uh, motivemktg.com. But I know that's the motive website. That one is like, that one's like all business all business okay. play uh, <laughs> the, the, the Bainbridge distillers, uh, a website. Um, if people have questions or, or people, uh, want to make contact, uh, there's a little bit of a bio up there, but don't spend a lot of time on that. But certainly anybody that wants to know something or anybody that wants to have a chat, they can come in or they can call or, and, uh, we'll try to, we'll try to, talk through whatever it is that they're interested in talking about. This is, this, this is a, this is a, this business is, is a, it's a privilege to be in this business and it's a privilege to, 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 uh, to talk with people that are enthusiastic about it. It's a privilege to make products that get to sit on the table when people are having good times and when people are having serious times and people are celebrating milestones, um, you know, we've got we've got a group of guys that it's a it's a multi-generational thing now. So this group of guys that uh, their family, all the all the guys and now some of the women in the family go up to Alaska on a fishing trip every year. And the first year that they went up was the I think the second or third year that we had whiskey and they brought some whiskey up there. And ever since it's the everybody goes, you're bringing that Bainbridge whiskey, right? You're bringing the Bainbridge whiskey. That's that's what they, that's what they bring up there. They have more to choose from now, but, but, you know, it's a generational thing. Now everybody's involved in it and to be, to be able to, to be able to just to have, uh, you know, a little, a little place at that table through your product being there and knowing that everybody is enjoying it and everybody's looking forward to it. And it's, and it's become part of, of a tradition and importantly, a, a family tradition. That's, there's, there's nothing, there's really nothing better than that. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's as good as it gets.
1: One thing we didn't touch on, and I'd be remiss if we didn't touch on it. So we'll close with this, your tasting room, what, what can, besides tasting, what, what else is going on at your tasting room? And when is that available to the public to, to go to?
0: For now, the tasting room is open, uh, four days a week. It's open from Wednesday through Sunday. We're open noon to five and you can do tasting flights of, of anything we have. So there's tasting flights for the, um, for any four of our standard products. There's a separate uh, fee for tasting Yama, uh, which at least lets people know before they spend a lot of money on a product, if they're going to like it. And Mm -hmm. um, we're just now, within within the guidelines that are available to us, we are starting to give tours again. We might be working on a virtual tour program, but um, we love giving, we love giving tours and showing people what it is that we do and and how things work and how the stills work and uh, to make it as educational. If you have a if you have 15 minutes, we can give you the cliffs notes. And if you have an hour and a half, then then they'll probably come and get me and then I'll then I'll I'll talk about it as long as somebody wants to talk about it.
1: Well I, I'm looking forward to taking a tour. I, I'm I'm looking forward to coming over and uh taking a look at this because it's fascinating. And I, I really think the intention of detail that you're you're putting in and 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 I like the fact that you're you're, you're positioning yourself if, if in other words you're you're acknowledging that there are good products out there, great products out there. And you want to bring your own variety to that and not, you know, and find a place that, like you said, just a second ago, finding a place at the table. I I just think it's, it's very intriguing to me and I, uh, I tip my cap and I I really look forward to, uh, like I said, coming over and taking, doing some tastings, but also getting a tour one of these days. So I will coordinate that with you. Yeah, please do. Okay. Well, thank you for being here today.
0: And thank you for having me. It's been, uh, it's been great.
1: Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.